It is always a privilege and an honor to be here with you all and to share the scripture together and to worship. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open those to the book of Daniel. That's where we will be today. Uh, but today we are in our fourth week of our six-week series called Piecing Together the Bible. What we're really trying to accomplish in these six weeks is to understand how the Bible is woven together. Understand how the redemptive story of God's uh, truth found in the scripture is all kind of knit together. Now, I've never heard of a church at all, ever spending time in the pulpit actually piecing together and surveying the Bible. We usually leave, leave these kind of things for seminary classes. But, you know, taking time out to understand how the Bible is put together kind of makes us unique here at Calvary Bible Church. You know, I, I, if you haven't figured this out by now, I really don't care about being cool or hip. or I appreciate you guys not having the requirement of me wearing skinny jeans up here. That would just look terrible on me. Uh, yes, I got an amen on the terrible looking on me. Uh, but I just appreciate you guys' uh, desire to understand the scripture and to preach it together. And what I want you to do, before we read the, the book of Daniel, I want you to actually go to the book of Malachi, the end of the book of Malachi, and I'm staring at mine up here. There should be a little piece of paper in between the two Testaments, in between the Old and New Testament, that one sheet of paper represents 400 years of history. I mean, think about how much the world has changed since 1621. That's, in a nutshell, that's how much the world has changed in between Malachi and Matthew. And today, we basically talk about how, what really happened in the events in between the Old Testament and New Testament and kind of how that shaped the New Testament world. And unfortunately, many Christians have no idea kind of what happens, and that is what I plan to unfold for us today. But what's amazing about that little sheet of paper in between Malachi and Matthew is that we have generally no idea what happens in between the Old and New Testament, but everything that really happens in between these two Testaments are actually predicted in your Bible in Daniel chapter 7. So that is what we are reading today. Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. It gives the whole picture of the 400 years of silence, the time period in between the old and new. It says this in Daniel 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said in verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold... The four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings like an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, the second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one was like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and the dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of, with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Amen. Thank you. 
When the fullness of time came, you sent forth your Son to redeem those under the law. And to not only give us eternal life, but to give us blessings and an inheritance and a status as sons and children of God. Lord, today we, we talk about when the fullness of time came. That phrase, we see how you have arranged your time in between the Old and New Testament to arrive at the perfect moment in history where your gospel could be go to the ends of the earth. Lord, what a magnificent God that we worship the gospel that you have freely given to us by faith, that if we would trust in you as our Lord and Savior, that we would have eternal life. What magnificent love is this. Lord, I pray that we would never grow weary, never grow tired of hearing the truth of your word and the gospel that you have freely given to us that cost you the, the life of your Son. Lord, this morning, I, uh, this morning I'm a bit nervous about my message because it's going to be a little bit less preaching and a little bit more teaching. But Lord, I pray that I would lay the foundation of our understanding and appreciation of the story that we find in the New Testament. Lord, I pray that we would just eagerly see your scripture and apply it to our lives. Bless this morning and lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. To any elementary school child, the Bible is incomplete. To any child, the Bible is incomplete. Because in school, we learn about Alexander the Great and men like Julius Caesar, but then we read the Bible and those men aren't mentioned. So the question is, is the Bible wrong? Where are they in the Bible? I imagine many of you here today have wondered the exact same thing. For decades, for decades in my life, I always wonder, I heard about this guy named Alexander the Great, I heard about this guy named Julius Caesar and Rome and all this, all these details in history, but then I look at my scripture and I kind of wonder where they are. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today. What is amazing about the scripture is that we see in Daniel chapter 7, we see a prophecy that is unfolded in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what we fail to see a lot of times in evangelical circles is how the 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, how that really affects and shapes the New Testament world, but also our world today. So that's where we kind of are going this morning. But before we go in too deep... Let us remember where we are in the series that we are unpacking. I will try to tell the story of the Old Testament, uh, 1,500 years of history in about 20 seconds, so buckle up. We, we, we boiled down the whole Old Testament to three weeks. We boiled it down to ten main events, if you were here for that series, part of it. Event number one was creation, creation, Genesis 1 and 2, that God created us in perfection to walk and to know Him. And then what happened? The serpent tempted Eve, and then the fall of man ushered in death and sin. But into the very moment of the consequences of sin with death and the increase in childbirth and pain and the increase of work, we see the redemptive story of God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then we had event number 3 of the Old Testament, Noah and the flood. Event number 4 was Abraham. He is introduced in Genesis chapter 11. 
him and his descendants go to the end of the book of Genesis and he, to him, to a man named Abram, then to Abraham, is promised to make a great nation. Abraham has a son named Isaac and Isaac has a son named Jacob and then Jacob has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. But then there's a famine in the land. There's a famine in the land of Canaan and then they make their way down to Egypt and then they find themselves there in Egypt in a foreign land as foreigners. They find themselves there in Egypt for 400 years and then eventually Pharaoh gets the brilliant idea to enslave these people that have become two million by the time we get to the book of Exodus. And then we have event number five. You have the, the two million people of Israel, they're enslaved to the nation of Egypt, and then Moses is appointed, although he has, in his eyes, he is disqualified in many ways. Moses then leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt into the desert. There they lay, or not lay, but wander for 40 years, and then Joshua takes the baton, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And then there's a period of time that goes from Joshua to 1 Samuel chapter 8, there's a period of 400 years where the nation of Israel is ruled by priests and judges are appointed by God to free them from foreign oppression. And then you have the coronation of kings, event number seven, Saul, then David, then Solomon, then Solomon's son named Rehoboam is a knucklehead, as most of us are, okay? We just, some of us just hide it better than others, okay? Uh, so, so Solomon has a son named Rehoboam, he splits the kingdom, there's civil war, there's the divided kingdom, event number eight, and then if you remember in first Kings, Second Kings chapter 17, the northern kingdom is deported under Assyria, and then the southern king, kingdom, kind of lives for another couple hundred years and is deported to Babylon and then the southern kingdom returns. That is the Old Testament in a nutshell. You didn't think I could do it, did you? But when we left, left off last time, the nation of Israel is trickling back into the land. They have returned under three different returns. They have returned under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And where we left off last time, Nehemiah has gathered the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and then kind of that's where we pick up today and then the scripture at the end of the book of nehemiah kind of goes silent let me let me just ask a question you don't have to raise your hand on this how many of you have ever heard a lesson about what happens in between the old testament and the new testament i got like 10 hands so no wonder we are totally confused as to what really happens in between the old and new testament now when I was preparing this this week, I, I realized the silence of the evangelical world on the 400 years of silence, the period between the Old Testament and New Testament, because I went on Google. That's what you do when, you know, you want to find out something right in our culture. Uh, you go on Google and you go on YouTube, and I looked for a lecture on the 400 years of silence, and I realized that the evangelical world is basically mute. So when we pick up in the book of Matthew, no wonder we're confused on who the Pharisees are and all their weird little rules. No wonder we're confused on who the Sadducees are and who's a zealot, because Simon the zealot, what is that? What's the temple? When was that built? When was Herod's temple built? All of these. Why is the Bible written in Greek? Why does the gospel spread to the ends of the earth in the first century? These are all questions and details that are found in the 400 years of silence, the period between the Old and New Testament. So um, let me tell you where I'm going this morning so you can kind of keep up with where I'm heading. 
my, my discussion this morning is going to be in three parts. Part number one, we're going to see the four, four historical events that happen in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And then part number two is going to be the five factors that shape the New Testament world. And then part number three is how the 400 years of silence shape our lives today. But as I you know, unpack the time period between Malachi and Matthew, that time period that we oftentimes don't have any idea what happens there. As I unpacked that, I realized that I'm looking at the nation of Israel and they're acting like they're trying to put together Ikea furniture without reading the directions. Now, I do some things well, but putting things together is not one of them. I am terrible at putting things together, okay? Just a, it's, a, it's a public profession, okay? So my, but my wife likes Ikea. Now, if you've ever bought an Ikea dresser, how does it come? It comes in this gigantic box, and there's a thousand different pieces in it, and I have nightmares about Ikea furniture. Every time my wife buys something from there, I have PTSD, okay? Now, my biggest issue is not knowing how a screwdriver works. My biggest issue is actually reading the directions. I don't have the patience to read the directions. So what I rather would do is just look at the pictures and then try to figure it out. So my wife bought a dresser, I don't know, a couple of months ago. And I try to put this thing together because I'm stubborn and I don't want to read the directions. I try to put this thing together by only looking at the pictures. And guess what happened to the dresser? And there was a big bow in the middle. Okay? And, I, and I can't figure out kind of what happened. We live the Christian life in the exact same way. We often live the Christian life without reading the directions. And we wonder why our lives turn out the way they do. We wonder why our lives turn out all cattywampus. Why my relationship with God seems distant. Why I don't feel connected. Why I'm struggling with a sense of mystery. We live our life by hunches. We live this life by someone else's good idea. We live our life by trying to keep up with the Joneses. We live this life of a really honest by the tyranny of the urgent, that we are chained and enslaved to our calendar and to our schedule. And oftentimes we have very little thought to actually what the Lord has for us that day. We live this life by feeling. And when we live the Christian life without reading the direction manual, how do we end up? We end up all cattywampus. That is a technical term. <laughs> when we live the Christian life without consulting the scripture by adding things to it that it does not say we will find ourselves distant from the Lord on a road that does not lead towards sanctification but this problem of struggling to only look at the pictures and not really read the instruction manual this struggle that we have in this Christian life is nothing really new matter of fact since the beginning of time since the garden of Eden Adam and Eve didn't really want to live by God's instruction manual God tells them don't eat of that tree you can eat of everything else but just don't eat of that one but then when I look at the, the nation of Israel in the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when I look at that time period, I look at Israel and they're doing the exact same thing. That they literally add details and instructions to the scripture without actually reading and applying 
the Bible, and it leaves them brewing a chemical compound of explosive proportions that we see in the first century. So if you have your Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 7. That's where we will be in our time today. Daniel chapter 7. As I've already mentioned, today is going to be a little bit less preaching and a little bit more teaching because, after all, only ten people raised their hand to have any kind of sermon or instruction on what happens in between the Old Testament and New Testament. That is what I want to do today. And what's amazing is that the book of Daniel, let me just say something really quick. The book of Daniel is probably the most incredible book in the whole scripture. Because we see so many predictions in the book of Daniel that come true, like Daniel's 70 weeks, that we know that the very day that Jesus rides in on the colt of a donkey into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, on that very day, was prophesied 490 years before by Daniel. And here we are in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel unfolds for Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, exactly what happens in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see four great beasts who represent the four great kingdoms of the earth. Notice it. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking at my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now let me pause just right here. Let me put a little note in. These four different beasts, as I've already mentioned, represent the four different great kingdoms of the earth. We've already talked about two of them. The last time I spoke, before I had COVID, uh, sorry to remind you of that terrifying thing. Okay, um, Two of them we've already discussed with Babylon and Persia, but then two of them we see that they're the most famous of all that come in between the Old Testament and New Testament. But notice the first beast we know as Babylon. Verse 4. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. First beast here represents Babylon. Why do I say that? It's because the two symbols of Babylon are a lion and an eagle. And then notice what it says. It's, it's wings being plucked and lifted from the ground to stand on two feet. What does that resemble? That resembles the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, that God plucks Nebuchadnezzar from his high post. He causes Nebuchadnezzar to live as a beast in the field, and then he restores King Nebuchadnezzar once he acknowledges the Lord. So that's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Then notice the second beast in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. Why a bear? Persia is a bear. A bear is ponderous. It represents strength, which we know is the nation of Persia that conquers Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. Notice verse 5 again. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And when it was raised up on one side... With three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and thus they said to the Lord, Arise, devour much meat. Okay, this is a little strange. Why the three ribs in the mouth? These three ribs represent the three kingdoms that are underneath Persian rule, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. 
The first two beasts we've talked about last time, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on Babylon and Persia. We kind of talked about that story and how the Bible fabrics that in. But then really what I want to talk about is beast number three and beast number four. Event number one, if you have your notes, is Alexander the Great leads to four kingdoms. If you've ever wondered where Alexander the Great is in the Bible, Daniel chapter 7, verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one. Like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The third beast is Alexander the Great, and it's a leopard. Why a leopard? What is a leopard known for? It's known for its speed. What do you know about Alexander the Great and his conquests of the whole known world? That this Alexander the Great was about 20 years old when he took over for his father, Philip of Macedonia. He then takes his army from Greece and then conquers the whole known world in less than a decade. And then Alexander the Great at the age of 32, younger than me, which weirds me out a little bit, at age 32 then dies. And then what happens? So his kingdom is over the whole known earth, and this young man at the age of 32 then dies. What happens to his kingdom? Notice verse 6. Like a leopard, Alexander the Great conquers the whole known world quickly, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. What do you know about what happened after he died? Four wings and four heads. His kingdom was divided into four different pieces, and there were four different heads amongst his four different generals. So Alexander the Great dies, and his kingdom is spread amongst his four generals that have four different territories. But then, if you notice, then it says his four different kingdoms are spread amongst the four different generals, and then kind of what happens. And this is where we really get confused on history and kind of what happens in the nation of Israel. Let me just ask you the question, what do all powerful men want more of? They want more power. So that's exactly what happens. Let me just read. This is out of, this is an excerpt out of First Maccabees, and if you've ever read that book before, it's a history book. It's not inspired of God. We'll talk about that more here in just a minute. This summarizes what happens to Alexander the Great. This history begins with Alexander the Great, the son of Philip of Macedonia, marched from Macedonia and attacked Darius, king of Persia, which is the second beast. Alexander enlarged the Greek empire by defeating Darius and seizing his throne. He fought many battles, captured fortified cities, and put the kings of the regions to death. As he advanced to the ends of the earth, he plundered many nations. And when he had conquered the world, he became proud and arrogant. By building up a strong army, he dominated whole nations and their rulers and forced everyone to pay him taxes. When Alexander had been emperor for 12 years, he fell ill and realized that he was about to die. He called together his generals, noblemen, who had been brought up with him since his early childhood, and he divided his empire, giving a part to each. After his death, the generals took control, and each had himself crowned king of his own territory. The descendants of these kings ruled for many generations and brought much misery on the world. That is out of the book of First. Maccabees, which is essentially the history that we understand. So event number one is Alexander the Great and the four kingdoms. Now, what do all men, powerful men want? They want more power. So then poor Israel is subjected to... Okay, I'm getting... I don't know if you all heard that. It was like an earthquake underneath my feet. Okay, so all powerful men want more power. So what happens? The world is kind of devolved amongst these four different kingdoms. And then a guy named Antiochus... 
Epiphanes comes to power and he rules the Seleucid Empire, which has dominion over the nation of Israel. Now, let me talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Maybe you've heard that name before. He is the king over the region of Israel. He is heinous. He is psychotic. He is monstrous. And Antiochus Epiphanes makes Ted Bundy look like a teddy bear. He's, he called himself Antiochus, and he called himself Epiphanes, which means the illustrious one, but his subjects had a different name for him. They called him Epimenes, which means the madman. If you know the story, to condense it for you all, Antiochus Epiphanes goes to war with Egypt. It is rumored to Israel that he is killed in battle, so... The nation of Israel begins to celebrate that this crazy man named Antiochus Epiphanes dies in battle, but then Antiochus doesn't die, instead he has his ego hurt. And then in anger, Antiochus goes into the temple of Jerusalem, and there he has the abomination of desolation, which is described in Daniel chapter 11. He takes a pig, which is an unclean animal to the nation of Israel. He takes a pig and slays it on the Most High Altar. Now, as you could imagine, this did not sit well with the nation of Israel. In 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power, and in 160 B.C., there is a rebellion by a group of men called the Maccabees. Maybe you've heard that before. There is a father who has many different sons, and his sons lead the nation of Israel to overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes. And then, essentially, the nation of Israel rules as an independent state from about 160 B.C. to about 63 B.C. Now, I'm going to explain why all of that is important here in just a moment. But I want you to think about it. The Jews revere the Maccabees the way we revere, let's say, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. They see them as patriots, people that were there to overthrow foreign oppression and just an FYI, in the culture today, the Feast of Hanukkah remembers the rededication of the temple and the independence of Israel from Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, I'm just going to do a little time out for just a second, and I want to kind of catch everybody up real quick. Now, where do I get all this from? I've already, I've already read an excerpt from the book of First and Second Maccabees. They, there are really three primary sources and one secondary source that I'm going to recommend to you. The three primary sources of the history in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, First and Second Maccabees, and then a guy named Josephus. He was a Jewish historian, I believe, in the first and second century that records this time period. But I'm going to recommend this book. If you want to really know the difference between the old, kind of what happens between the Old Testament and New Testament, it's called The Silent 400 Silent Years. It's by a guy named H.A. Ironside. Actually, one of you gave it to me, and I read it a couple different times when I was in Colorado. So I'm going to recommend that. But the events of, and I'm going to talk about something else real quick. I told you it's going to be more of a, a lecture and teaching time rather than more of a preaching time. There's something you might have heard of. And I just want to clarify exactly what it is. Something called the Apocrypha. How many of you have ever heard of the Apocrypha before? Yeah. How many of you are confused what that is? <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. 25 hands just came up. The Apocrypha is a collection of 15 books that were written in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And unlike our Catholic cousins, whatever you want to call our relationship to them, we... In, Evangelical circles believe that they are not inspired of God in the slightest. Now, why do I say that the Apocrypha books are not 
inspired of God. They are not included in our canon for three main reasons. What does it say? That his, God's sheep hear his voice. Let me just say something. I read the book of 1 Maccabees, and I felt like I was reading a history book. That there's a vast difference between 1 Samuel and 1 Maccabees, because 1 Maccabees is not inspired of God. Why else are the apocryphal books not included? Reason number two is the New Testament writers. Listen to this. The New Testament writers quote the Old Testament 283 times in the New Testament. Guess how many times they quote the, the Apocrypha? Big goose egg. So the New Testament writers themselves do not affirm that the Apocrypha are inspired of God. They're just a collection of history books. And the reason number three why the Apocrypha is not included is that the, the Jewish nation themselves don't see them as inspired of God. They don't value them the way that they value the Old Testament. Listen, friends, there's a lot of um, discussion in our culture about the Apocrypha and Gnostic Gospels. There was a lot of that when the book came out, the Da Vinci Code. Let me just say it this way. The Bible is 66 books. And that is what we have before us. That there is nothing that was missed, there's nothing that should be included, but that the scripture that we have from Genesis to the book of Revelation is inspired of God, that his word is complete, and we did not make a mistake. So that is kind of what happens with Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel chapter 11, and then event number 3 is the Maccabean Rebellion and Independence. And then event number four is Rome. The fourth beast mentioned in Daniel chapter 7 is Rome. Notice verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder of its, with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The fourth beast is Rome. It tramples and devours all that has come before it. And what we do not see, that in the book of First Maccabees, this guy named Judas Maccabees actually calls and ushers peace with Rome because he realizes that Rome is the up-and-coming empire that's going to eventually rule the whole known world. But what Judas Maccabees does not realize is that he is ushering in peace with Rome that will eventually open the door to Rome's rule and dominion over the nation of Israel. When we exit the book of Malachi. Where are we? They just returned under Persian rule. Then when we open to the book of Matthew, where are we? That is Rome. Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus is mentioned. So there is a drastic historical difference that happened in the 400 years between the two, and that is how it all worked out. So that is kind of part one. And part two are kind of the five factors that really shaped the New Testament world. And I'm going to go through these pretty quickly. Factor number one is patriotism. The Maccabean Rebellion ignited patriotism. Think about the New Testament world. The, the Jews were very skeptical and were always looking for the kingdom of God. Why? Because they wanted to overthrow the Roman government and kick them out. So they're always trying to look for the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're patriots. They're looking for independence from all foreign oppressions. So that's what we pick up in the New Testament. There's this, there's this explosive chemical compound. That has been brewing for 400 years that when we pick up it is explosive that explodes and eventually blows up in the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 AD. But the nation of Israel deals with foreign oppression in a few different ways. And I'm going to explain it through the four different Jewish sects. Sect number one are the Pharisees. 
Now, all of us probably know that term, the Pharisees. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. The, the, firm, the word Pharisees means the separate ones. They try to deal with foreign oppression by being uber-religious, trying to force God's kingdom to come on earth by forcing their own justification and to safeguard Israel against deportation by ushering in the kingdom of God through piety. The Sadducees are Jewish politicians of the day. They are Jewish aristocrats. They're trying to work with Rome. Section number three of the Essenes. Now, some of you probably have never heard that one before. They were Jewish monks that compiled the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they dealt with foreign oppression from the Maccabean period by isolating themselves near the Dead Sea. Section number four are the Zealots. The Zealots were Jewish rebels. They were patriots in their eyes. If you remember, there's one of Jesus' own disciples that is called Simon the Zealot. Factor number two is Herod's temple. If you remember, Ezra returns and he begins to rebuild the temple. Well, then about the first century B.C., a guy named Herod the Great, who was an Edomite, actually, Jewish king that was underneath Roman dominion, goes on a building spree and he rebuilds the temple that was built rebuilt under Ezra, but he rebuilds the temple, Herod's temple, and to be opulent, to be great. So when Jesus, think about it, when Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew, the temple that he walks into is not Solomon's temple, it's actually Herod the Great's temple. Factor number three is the Mishnah. Now what is that? Oh man, glad you asked. This is the Mishnah. Look at that thing right there. What is that? This is, this is probably the most important factor that really shaped the New Testament Jew, Jewish culture. The Mishnah is an oral commentary on the Old Testament. So a guy named Simon in about 200 B.C. began to give an oral commentary on the Old Testament. So eventually the Jews decided that instead of just communicating orally generation after generation, they would then record all of this man's teachings in something called the Mishnah. Now, how many of you have ever wondered why the Pharisees had some pretty goofy Sabbath rules? It's because of this. Because when we look in the New, look, when we look in the Old Testament, we, we, we look at the Sabbath rules. All it says is to keep the Sabbath holy, right? So there's really no set rules per se. I mean, there are a few that really under, that tell us how to keep the Sabbath holy. So this guy named Simon begins to give an oral commentary on how that is done. So then the Pharisees then begin to pick that up, they record it, and then they start putting IKEA furniture together. They then start looking at the pictures instead of actually looking at God's instruction manual. They then look at the pictures and the commentaries of a man named Simon, and instead of valuing and seeing God's instruction manual, they then value something that was written by man and not by God, and then that leads the culture in the first century to be all cattywampus, so to speak. Their attempt to build a godly life was not built upon the word of God, but was built upon a man's commentary on the word of God. Allow me to just speak. Um, Friends, we have the exact same temptation. 
that in the Christian life we often don't value the actual scripture itself. We instead in this Christian life, we chase fads, we chase lights and skinny jeans, whatever those are. We, we chase the latest and greatest instead of founding our spiritual life, instead of raising our kids in the instruction of the Word of God, we instead chase the latest personality and their commentary on the Scripture. Friends, there is nothing that substitutes for you reading, understanding, and applying the Scripture. If you really want to build a godly life, you must read, know, and apply the Scripture. And that is what Israel fails in the 400 years of silence to do. They don't value the scripture as it sits. They instead look for some man's idea on what the scripture says, and then they value that over the word of God, leaving them all discombobulated. To build a godly life, we must read and apply God's word. But before I read, or I share with you factors four and five, I'm going to read a section of scripture This is in Galatians 4. I've already read it to you this morning. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. In other words, this, that at the exact right moment in history, God sent his son on earth to redeem us. Let's just ask the question, why is it the exact right time? When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. There has never been a more optimal time in history to send forth the Son of God to take His message to the ends of the earth. Why do I say that? Because of factor four and five. Factor number four is the Greek universal language. For the first time in recorded history, since before the Tower of Babel, for the first time in recorded history, there is a language that everyone on earth understood. That is Greek, Koine Greek, that Alexander the Great, in 324 B.C., somewhere around there, takes his Greek language in classical Greek and then takes it all across the whole known world and his language morphs and it shapes into something called Koine Greek and then the Bible that we read in the New Testament is written in that exact language. Why? So that God would allow every person that has lived on the earth at that time could read it and see it for themselves. That exact right time, God sent forth His Son. For the very first time in recorded history, there was a recorded language that everyone knew. But think about what else happened. Factor number five is Roman infrastructure. So you had the Greek language, and then you had Roman infrastructure. For the first time, people had roads. People had shipping trade. So think about it. When Paul and Barnabas go on their missionary journeys, what is it? They encounter a world where everybody essentially understands the same language and there are roads and ships to take them there. That is why 
the scripture spread like wildfire in the first century. And that is why when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. Part one is the history of the 400 years. Part two is kind of how the history impacted the New Testament world. And then part number three is how the history that we see in the time in between the Old Testament and New Testament, how that shapes our world today. Every day, you and I must make a choice. Every day, the choice that we make is to either be our own God or to actually submit to the God that we worship here this morning. Our decision every day is to either be enslaved to our calendar or to actually be a student of the Word of God. Every day, we must put the right screw in the right hole. We must make the right decision to live according to His truth. And the only way we will ever really live lives of godliness and sanctification, the only way that you will really ever feel close to God is being a student of his word, but not just a student of his word, but one that applies the scripture itself. To build a godly life, you must read and apply God's word. I know we know that. I know we know that, especially here in Calvary Bible Church. I mean, we have Bible in our middle name. I mean, come on. I mean, we know that we're supposed to read and apply God's word, but do we? But do we? Do we know the scripture? Do we look at the scripture as if God is instructing me in the 21st century to live according to that? Do we take the scripture Seriously, do we read it as if expectantly that the Lord is going to speak through His Spirit to shape and to change our lives? To build a godly life, we must read and apply God's instruction manual. I'm going to close with a reference out of James chapter 1. James is one of my favorite books in all of the Scripture. It says this, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Success or failure in the Christian life is determined by how much of the Bible you get into your life on a daily basis and how obedient you are to it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that we can just gather together around your word. Lord, I know that today was a little little bit different than what I normally give. Um, but Lord, I just pray that it, would, it was helpful and it was useful. It helped us understand your redemptive story and how you have pieced together the fabric of your word. Lord, I pray that we would not be like the Pharisees that value the wrong things. Lord, I pray that we would value your word, that we would read it and be students of it and apply it to our lives. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning that do not know you, that feel far from you, that are searching to understand what it means to live the Christian life. Lord, I think there's someone here this morning that has been looking for answers because they realize their own brokenness and sinfulness. 
And Lord, I pray that they would realize the gospel that you've freely given to us, that you have come and you died on the cross for our sins, and that if we trust in you as our Lord and Savior, that we would be saved. Lord, thank you for today. I thank you for Calvary Bible Church and our uniqueness, that we can gather around your word and discuss things that people usually don't. And Lord, thank you for today. Bless it. In Jesus' name.